This is uh, PageSquare Theory 2, Unit 15, Part 1, um, Introduction to Toxicology. So we'll talk about sort of broad principles, toxicology, and then we'll talk about specific toxidromes. Um, when we get into toxidromes, I'll explain what that is in a second, uh, we're not going to talk about every conceivable drug that you might encounter in the field. Um, there are actually some good websites, and I think I may have provided some links in the Patient Care Theory 2 resources page. Any of you guys go to that Google page? There's a link to it in, all oh, look at me sort of blankly. There's a link to it in Blackboard. No one's seen it? No? Yeah, okay. It's, um, it's a resource page and I'm slowly building up content in there. It's, it's just supplemental reading, interesting articles, videos, things of that nature. Any interesting websites I come across that I think are quite good and relevant. Um, I'm not going to post junk up there, but there's some stuff in there that might be quite relevant. And um, uh, so um, toxicology is, uh, looks at the, um, the, the nature and effects of different uh, poisons and uh, the treatment of different poisons. It's a, it's a really interesting subject area, and um, um, I have a reasonable knowledge of toxicology, but it's a niche area that I think is worth pursuing if, you're, if you develop a passion for it, because there are very few medics I've met who know a lot about toxicology or recognizing toxidromes, and it's a, a nice little niche area. So a toxidrome is um, what they call the, um, a poison thing, uh, sometimes referred to as a, the poison fingerprint. So it's a toxidrome means a collection of signs and symptoms that are specific to a certain poison. So for example, opioids, uh, the toxidrome for opioids is classically bradypnea um, and pinpoint pupils. Right? So they get tiny little pupils and they breathe slowly and shallowly. So that's a, would be uh, the classic toxidrome for opioids. Um, so physiological fingerprint, they sometimes refer to that as, and um, most toxidromes are either an agonist, which means a stimula stimulator of, or an antagonist, which means blocks the effects of some component of the autonomic nervous system. So we sometimes refer to um, uh, drugs in, at levels that are poisonous as sympathomimetics or cholinergics, which is essentially like a parasympathomimetic. Uh, so sympathomimetics would be stimulants. Uh, parasympathomimetics or cholinergics would, would um, have the opposite effect, slow things down. So first principles, um, uh, an understanding of the CNS and ANS is critical. Uh, you've covered this, I think, in first semester. And um, I'll touch on it very briefly, um, no deeper than we've already sort of covered it in cardiology. So uh, the other um, complicating factor is um, sometimes you're looking for a toxidrome, but you may not see it because people co-ingest other drugs. So if someone's taken an opioid and cocaine, you're not going to get the classic, you may not get the classic bradypnea uh, and pinpoint pupils. You may get uh, um, an unresponsive or diminished responsive patient who's got normal sized pupils and 
is breathing at a rate and depth that's not unreasonable. So you can get a mix of toxidromes. And for the most part, uh, the key to keeping them alive is just su providing supportive care. So just recognizing that they have an airway problem that needs to be addressed with uh, opening the airway. Um, on the subject of airway, if you recognize a, uh, an airway that uh, the patient cannot maintain, but you can give a reversing agent like Narcan, then there's no need to, um, for ACPs, for example, to put an endotracheal tube in place. Um, an OPA is probably fine, or an NPA. You give the Narcan, they wake up, you pull the OPA or you pull the NPA. Um, so if, if I'm on a call with you and I, we encounter a patient who's, who's got a diminished level of consciousness, but it looks like there's something we can do to correct it, either low blood sugar or an opioid, then uh, I'm not gonna go uh, do and put in a, an advanced airway, an invasive airway. Um, so we should be familiar with some of the basic antidotes, and uh, I'll talk about those a little later on. So again, first principles, early intervention is supportive, airway, breathing, if they need uh, airway maintained with a jaw thrust, with an MPA and OPA, good. If, they, uh, if their rate and volume for breathing is inadequate, we provide positive pressure ventilation. Uh, so we do the ABCDs and apply antidotes where appropriate. But, uh, uh, but the key is intervene quickly, intervene early with respect to the, the um, the uh, primary survey. And um, it's important to recognize the, the level of toxicity of certain uh, overdoses. Um, for example, did we talk about Tylenol? The last, have we talked about Tylenol? I can't remember. Did we? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, so do you remember the toxic dose for Tylenol? The lethal dose for most adults? Yeah. Sorry? No, it's more than that. Yeah, it's, it's between uh, seven and 8,000 milligrams or seven and eight grams for toxic dose. It's about 14 grams for a, a lethal dose. And um, you recall from our discussion that uh, people who overdose on Tylenol, you know, all they need to do is take 28 pills. They overdose on Tylenol. They may be asymptomatic for six, seven hours. Once they hit the eight to 10 hour mark, and then they call 911. We're gonna get to the hospital as quickly as possible, but it may be too late for an antidote. So, so uh, what's important is not just supportive care and uh, <coughs> knowing the antidotes, it's also important to recognize those situations that are uh, more life-threatening than may appear to the average person. So a Tylenol overdose at six hours or eight hours they're awake, they're talking, they have a little abdominal discovered, they seem like they're perfectly fine, they're gonna get lights and signage to the hospital. They're gonna be code four, CTAS two. Right, you have to recognize the toxicity and you have to recognize that they need to be um, treated with the antidote as quickly as possible. So, uh, like I said, six hours, uh, I have a guy with a Tylenol overdose, he has no complaints whatsoever, his wife called 911, He's fine, he says he doesn't need the hospital, but I managed to persuade him to go to the hospital. We get in the back of the ambulance, lights and sirens, CTAS 2, I'm gonna notify the hospital. 
So they're thinking already about getting um, the antidote for Tylenol, which is mucomist or N-acetylcysteine it's called. And uh, we're gonna, in the hospital, they're gonna treat that guy as quickly as possible to keep, keep uh, the Tylenol from destroying his liver. Otherwise they die an excruciating death in about four or five days. Um, so early intervention is important. Um, our other job that's really, really important is to gather evidence because it's the only opportunity to gather evidence. Um, the hospital might send police back to the scene to ask more questions if you and I don't get enough information, but we need to gather um, as much evidence as possible. I don't mean uh, collecting uh, things necessarily, but um, we need to, um, uh, this stuff is sort of not terribly important, but um, we need to find out, for example, um, what they took, if at all possible, how much they took, when they took it, um, did they take anything else? If they did, what, how much, when? Um, have they had any vomiting? Have they had, uh, you know, the vomiting is probably the more important thing. Um, and uh, we want to grab pills, so grab pill bottles, and we'll do pill counts. Um, they're probably not going to do a pill count in the, uh, in the back of the ambulance, but if you tell a nurse that uh, the patient overdose on alprazolam and you hand the triage nurse the pill bottle, she's likely going to sit down and uh, count the number of pills uh, and determine how many pills should be in that bottle based on the prescription date um, and how many pills were likely consumed. Now they're still going to do urinalysis and blood work to try to determine the level of toxicity, um, but doing pill counts is important. I tried doing a pill count in the back of the ambulance once. That was a big mistake. I spilled pills. Um, they landed between the cushions and into the underneath the bench seat. Uh, that was a bad idea. And counting pills at the scene, probably not a good idea either. Just let the staff do that. Um, you know, let's see, look in the bottle. There's two pills left, and there should have been 42. You know, that's another thing. So, um, we don't. We used to induce vomiting when, um, when there was a history of a re, uh, history of a recent uh, consumption of pills. We used to induce vomiting with uh, a syrup of epicac. Any of you heard of syrup of epicac? You can buy it in the drugstore still, I think. Yeah. So uh, we don't do that, um, and they generally don't do it in hospital. Any idea why? The reason why we don't induce vomiting anymore is because um, if they take a drug and uh, we, uh, Ipecac takes 20 to 40 minutes to start to work. If their level of consciousness drops off in that 20 to 40 minutes, uh, then they're vomiting and they're unresponsive and there's risk of aspiration of gastric content, right? So it makes for a mess. So we don't induce vomiting anymore. Um, so recognizing toxins requires some familiarity with uh, some basic pharmacology, understanding the autonomic nervous system, um, uh, some stats, so most poisons in children and the elderly occur accidentally and recur with remarkable frequency. Uh, most poisonings in adolescents and young occur non-accidentally, either through experimentation or uh, risk-taking behavior or suicidal intent. 
and uh, pediatric patients, so peak age for poisonings is between 10 months, it's around 10 months, and then peaks again at ages two to four years. And um, um, uh, prior history of poisoning um, is fairly common, so you want to find out about that. And certainly if, um, if the parent has a child who's now poisoned the second time, I would be a little bit suspicious although I'm not going to express that. Uh, under a year of age, poisoning is almost always child abuse because kids don't have the dexterity or the motor skills to access and take these drugs on their own. Um, five years of age can sometimes um, indicate suicidal intent. I know that sounds really bizarre, uh, but kids as early as age five will sometimes try to kill themselves. Now, obviously, at that age, they don't understand the idea of death. Uh, but if they, if the child's got a parents who are suicidal, um, then they may learn fairly quickly what that means exactly and uh, how to do that. I think I told you uh, my youngest suicide was 11 years old. He hung himself in his closet. Um, he was alive when we picked him up. He died a couple of days later, but um, he had a mom who had made numerous suicide attempts and he couldn't take it anymore so he um, tied the sleeve of sweater around his neck and hum, hung himself in his bedroom closet and died later so um, I think I think the youngest suicide I've heard of, that I've heard of personally uh, from another medic was a nine-year-old uh, kids will do it so pediatrics represent about four percent of fatalities and there are a number of things that can cause poisons, not just drugs, but um, all sorts of household products like uh, gases, fumes, vapors, pharmaceutical agents. When I say fumes and vapors, I mean uh, you know, things like sniffing glue, sniffing paint thinner, sniffing gasoline. Um, there was a community up north at one time, uh, there was a, a prevalence of parents who uh, put their, got their kids to sleep by um, putting a, a gasoline-soaked cloth on their pillowcase and got them to breathe in the gasoline to help them sleep, and that seemed to work, but also resulted in some fatalities. Um, pharmaceuticals, most commonly uh, analgesics like opioids, psychotropics, and uh, sedative hypnotics. Psychotropics are um, drugs for mental health. And um, so when you're dealing with a possible poison, you want to find out where medications are kept and bring them all with you so you can do a count because uh, kids will get into their parents' medications and um, uh, oftentimes when the parent, when the kids are being looked after by the grandparents at the grandparents' house, they'll get into the grandparents' medication. It's usually more of a buffet. Those. So we talked about the autonomic nervous system before. I don't think we need to uh, go through this um, uh, system again. But uh, just remember when you're looking at at toxidromes and how they affect the autonomic nervous system. Think about it as, as having, you know, one foot on the gas pedal, one foot on the brake pedal. I feel like I've talked about all this before. Do we cover this topic before? No. no? Okay. Okay. Good. Um, it's funny. Um, so, um, history and physical exams. So. Um, as I mentioned before, we want to find out what drug or poison was taken. Uh, try to locate the container, take it with you, or at the very least, if it's a container, 
Um, if you're going to take a photo of it, try to take a photo of the, the fine print on the back, the details. Um, most services will recommend that you carry the uh, poison control number with you. Uh, personally, I don't know that there's any benefit to calling poison control when you're on the scene of a call because they're not going to tell you anything that you're able to do or not able to do. You should know what to do. Um, I had a, I worked with a guy once um, and we did a call for a five-year-old who inhaled some chlorine gas. Did I tell you this story? Yeah. By the pool? Yeah. Anyway, he was on the phone, phone to poison control, which really ticked me off. And uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm calling poison control. I said, hang up. We don't need poison control. <laughs> like, like there's really not, nothing to do except, you know, give her salbutamol and transport her to the hospital. There's no antidote, nothing else we're going to do. So, um, uh, how did this occur? And if you think it's suicidal intent, uh, just ask them point blank. Uh, the best approach oftentimes is to ask them, were you trying to kill yourself? And people will tell you. Have you thought about suicide? Have you been thinking about suicide? Do you have a plan? How much, if possible? Um, I would let the hospital do a pill count, frankly. Uh, when was it ingested? Any co-ingestions? We want to know if it was alcohol. Uh, benzodiazepines, the set of the hypnotics, like the prams, alprazolam, um, et cetera, diazepam. Um, rarely are they fatal unless you're combined with alcohol. And when I say alcohol, I mean, you know, more than a glass of wine. Um, so we want to find out if they've been co-ingested. Do they have any comorbidities that put them at risk? So do they have underlying heart disease or lung disease or are they immunodeficient? Are they battling cancer? Uh, it's interesting, you know, I rarely see, um, uh, rare, we rarely see, or at least, um, that I've heard of, and certainly my own experience, cancer patients who try to kill themselves. Um, occasionally you get cancer patients who inadvertently take too much of their uh, narcotic. And I'm very, very cautious about giving them Narcan. I want to give them as low a dose as possible because the last thing I want to do with a pa patient who's in exquisite 24 hour, seven days a week pain is reverse all of that. So. I want to give them a minuscule amount of Narcan, just enough to get them breathing normally and not to wake them up so they're in excruciating pain. It's going to be, you know, over an hour before they start to get feel the effects of their opioids again. But, um, uh, so we, we want to know and relay to the hospital, were they conscious or unconscious when you first arrived? Was their airway patent or not patent? Were they breathing adequately? What was their hemodynamic status? Were there any ECG changes? So sometimes there are classic ECG changes with certain toxidromes um, that we look for. We'll talk about this in more detail next semester. But for example, uh, you know, QRS is uh, normally narrow, right? So less than 0.12 second. So we do an initial ECG and a 12-lead ECG. And if the QRS starts to widen. Um, that uh, commonly occurs in tricyclic overdoses, as an example. So signs and symptoms, airway patent, any shortness of breath, tachypnea, bradypnea, altered level of consciousness, any pain, 
uh, their hemodynamic status, any dysrhythmias. Um, and an, uh, I think it was a 17-year-old who, I can't remember, was smoking pot or eating something um, with pot in it. But uh, he, uh, he called us because he felt like he was <coughs> going to die. And uh, we arrived with police, and he was standing on the front lawn of a neighbor's house. And he looked really, really agitated. And uh, I didn't think much of the call at the time. It's just a, an annoying teenager who consumes some pot, <laughs> and uh, which is not good, right? It's a, a bit of a judgment. Well, we got him in the back of the animals. He had a heart rate of 140, and he was having multi-form premature ventricular complexes. Very unusual for that age, right? So he's. He's got this sinus tachycardia of 140, you know, which is very fast for resting heart rate. He's got this going on. So, um, which tells me not a lot, but what it does tell me is that his heart is quite irritable. Uh, but the big question is why? Right, so there had to be something other than the marijuana mixed in with this food or whatever you smoked. Um, probably a stimulant of some sort, something, or, or maybe even some sort of poison that didn't belong there, like a pesticide or something. Lord knows, I mean, the strangest things go into drugs uh, that was causing some significant cardiac irritability. So he felt like he was gonna die, you know, without physically rolling my eyes. My eyes were a little bit rolling <laughs> and uh, until we got in the, the back of the ambulance and I saw this, and his blood pressure was a little low. He's a little pale as well. And then I realized, okay, this kid's sicker than I thought. Now, having said that, there wasn't a lot we could do for him other than just uh, uh, take him to the hospital. His oxygen saturation was good. Um, there wasn't enough time to patch to a base hospital doc to get advice, and uh, so we just transported. Um, so. We look for other signs as well. So if you suspect they're a drug addict, we look for track marks. And uh, we look for track marks on the arms, on the legs, on the feet, um, upper legs, lower legs, upper arms, lower arms. Um, some even start to inject in the neck when they can't find veins in their arms or legs anymore. Uh, any signs of poor hygiene, rotting teeth is usually, you know, crystal meth addicts get rotting teeth. Um, we want to rule out other causes of altered level of awareness. So um, as you recall from first semester, um, when you do a neurological assessment, we always look at the highest score. But if you get to the point where, for example, you're doing a pain stimulus, and let's say you do either trap skews or a sternal rub, and the patient reaches across to move it away, that's localized to pain. But if they localize the pain with one arm, you need to check for pain stimulus still in all four limbs. So for example, if, if a, your patient um, tries to move your hand away with the right arm, we still don't know whether he has focal neurological deficit on the left side, right? So we're gonna do a nail bed squeeze all the way around to see if that patient has focal neurological deficits. Focal deficits usually means some sort of structural cause like a bleed in the brain, a stroke, a head injury, a tumor, uh, global deficits can be metabolic or poison. Um, you can also get focal neurological deficits with hypoglycemia, so we can't rule out a low blood sugar, so that's why we check blood sugar in all patients with altered mental status. And uh, 
else. Uh, in terms of general principles of management, as I said, we're going to support the ABCs, rule out the causes of altered level of consciousness, try to differentiate between structural versus metabolic, and to do that, we're looking at uh, whether they have focal versus global neurological deficits. Um, in hospital, they're going to try to decrease absorption. We don't, that's not something we do. Decontamination happens in hospital. Um, but on that note, um, if the patient's vomiting, we're not going to discourage that. Right, so if the patient's taking some pills, now if they take an injection, vomiting is probably not, not going to help in any way, shape, or form. But if they've taken some pills and they start to vomit it, uh, we don't want to discourage that. We're not going to give them syrup of epicap to induce it, but we don't want to discourage vomiting. We just want to protect their airway. And um, I say that, and you might think, well, why would we discourage them from vomiting? And because uh, medics get into such a routine sometimes um, of doing certain things for certain conditions that they forget when it's not appropriate. Uh, biggest example. Um, I think I told you about this incident. I had a, we had an overdose patient, and um, uh, my partner wanted to give gravol, and I said, no gravol. And he said, Rob, he's vomiting, he needs gravol. I said, he's overdosed, I want him to vomit. And my partner said, oh, right, of course. But we get, it's easy to fall into the trap of getting into that routine of Patient nauseated, vomiting, give him gravol. You know, but uh, be very careful about becoming a robotic medic. You don't want to be robotic and treat signs and symptoms. We treat the patient, right? The bigger picture. <coughs> okay. So, uh, enhanced elimination, they'll do that in the hospital where they can protect the airway, they can manage the airway, provide an antidotes as as uh, necessary and adjunct, uh, adjunctive therapies. I'll talk a little bit about that in the hospital. So um, uh, our objective, again, as I said, supportive care, maintaining airway, maintaining breathing, uh, maintaining hemodynamic status if they need fluids to get their blood pressure up. That's what we do. And um, maintaining the airway would include things like putting in an OPA or an NPA. If I think the patient's going to wake up soon, I might put an NPA instead of an OPA because they're less likely to gag on an NPA than an OPA, right? Um, on the other hand, um, you might argue that an OPA might be good in case they develop trismus. You know, the jaw becomes clenched. At least they've got a bite stick there with an OPA that keeps their mouth open a little bit. Uh, so it's a judgment, right? Uh, endotracheal intubation, generally avoid it, but uh, if I need to, I will. Uh, decontamination, so in hospital, they'll do uh, gastric lavage, where they'll, um, you know, if, if the overdose happened within, say, an hour to two hours, they'll put a nasogastric tube through the nose and down in the stomach. They'll um, put normal saline into the stomach, and then they'll suction it out. and. If you ever get the chance to see this in the emergency department, it's very cool because you'll see pill fragments floating through the, the nasogastric tube um, as they empty the stomach out. It's very cool. It's fun just to stare at the pill fragments going by. You know. It's very neat. Um, but, uh, and so they'll, they'll do gastric lavage, they'll do gastric suctioning. Um, 
if uh, once that's done, or if it's too late to do, uh, you know, in the judgment of the hospital to do gastric suctioning, they'll administer activated charcoal. And what activated charcoal does is it, uh, they swallow it, it goes into their stomach and GI tract, and it acts like a magnet for drugs. Drugs tend to um, latch on to the activated charcoal, and then they eliminate it through bowel movement. And um, uh, as I said, emesis is good, but we don't necessarily want to induce it. Oh, and I got a little video for you. This is a syrup of Epicac video. <laughs> All right, gastric lavage, I love that video. Um, so we talked a little bit about this already. Um, and so gastric lavage is typically done within an hour of the ingestion. Uh, and they usually put in a nasogastric tube. It's a little better tolerated than an oral gastric tube. Um, and um, has anyone seen an NG tube put in? Sorry, have you? Yeah? Three, four of you? Okay. Um, it's funny, eh? So when you put a nasogastric tube in, you put it in, you have the patient swallow. Sometimes you give them a glass of water, you have them swallow like a straw <coughs> so that it goes down the esophagus. And um, once it gets down, once you've measured it, I think it's uh, nose to chin to xiphoid. I can't remember for sure. Uh, might be a little longer than that and then add a couple of inches. Anyway, once you get it in, uh, you attach a 60C syringe to it and you push air into the tube, the nasogastric tube, and you have someone auscultate just below the xiphoid to make sure that the air is going into the stomach so you're in the right place as opposed to being in the trachea. And um, I was, uh, um, when I was doing my critical care training, um, one of the docs said, uh, Rob, um, so-and-so is putting a nasogastric tu tube in. Uh, why don't you go help him out? And I said, well, can I do it? And he said, well, um, you do the next one. He's a resident, so he's a resident trainer. Right? So, uh, and I put in a couple before, but anyway, this, this new doc was putting the tube in and he was putting it in so gingerly and it's focused so much on this patient's nose, just putting in a little inch at a time, nice and slowly and the guy, the expression on the guy's face was he stopped swallowing and he looked like the tube was gathering up in his mouth. And sure enough, he opens his mouth and the tube comes out. <laughs> but that wasn't the funny part. The funny part was this resident kept pushing the tube in even as the tube was coming out of his mouth. <laughs> you know, I had to stop him and say, uh, it's not in the right place. He said, how do you know? coming out his mouth happens to the best of us. So some advantages, you get direct access to the stomach uh, and there's potential for immediate recovery of the drug or a good portion of the drug. And, um, and that's repeated until the flu is clear. So uh, the tube goes down uh, you might fill the stomach with a liter of normal saline, then start to suction it. Um, and if there's still pill fragments coming out at the end of the suction, then you'd add another liter and then suction out again, look for more pill fragments until the tube becomes clear. And then at that point, usually it's recommended that uh, they get um, activated charcoal. Now, um, not recommended to patients who have an altered level of consciousness. 
or LOC, decreased LOC is anticipated. Enhanced illumination, so activated charcoal. Uh, sometimes they do forced diuresis. They'll um, alkalinize the, the urine. So if you give a, a, something like a sodium bicarbonate and you uh, shift the pH to uh, the alkaline side, when the urine becomes alkalized, alkalinized, it uh, helps eliminate the drug. You eliminate more drug through urination. Um, hemodialysis is usually a last-ditch effort. That's a, a pretty extreme measure. Um, and um, uh, these are, <coughs> for the most part, all hospital-based. So activated charcoal, most drugs are carbon-based, uh, so they tend to uh, uh, adhere to carbon-based compounds. And um, um, activated charcoal, it's very helpful if they can't get gastric lavage or you can't induce emesis. Um, so, uh, the idea is to um, uh, grab as much of the drug as possible before it goes, uh, gets metabolized through the liver and uh, uh, works for all most drugs that are ingested. And um, forced diuresis, um, this is not something we do in the field. I've never heard of anyone patching for this and I certainly wouldn't patch for it uh, unless your transport times are really extraordinary. You know, if you're if you're in the far north and you've got an overdose and uh, uh, you could call the base hospital for you know, advice, uh, but forced diuresis is not typically something medics do. Um, and the evidence is not that uh, strong for it. So um, let's not worry about alkalinization. I'm not gonna test you on this stuff, um, but um, uh, interesting uh, point. Um, Sodium bicarb, so if you get any overdose, you should be calling for ACB backup, regardless of the patient's level of consciousness. Um, and um, if it's a TCA overdose, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, um, one of the mechanisms by which they work is they block fast sodium channels. And so to counter that sodium channel blockade, which causes um, arrhythmias, is to give them bicarbonate. Bicarbonate, not because of it's a, it's a buffer, but because bicarbonate is 3% saline. So it's a high concentration of sodium and uh, helps to counteract the sodium blockade effect of TCAs. Cocaine, interesting. Um, if someone takes cocaine and they have ventricular tachycardia, um, lidocaine, which is an antiarrhythmic, is contraindicated in uh, cocaine because um, it can cause uh, fatal arrhythmias. So uh, sodium bicarbonate is a treatment of choice for uh, ventricular tachycardia. Um, hemodialysis, reserved for extreme situations. This is a fairly new therapy in the last 10, 15 years called lipid emulsion therapy. And uh, uh, works quite well on things like bupropion, which is a psychotropic drug. Some people take bupropion to quit smoking. Uh, lamotrigine, verapamil, atenolol, sertraline, which is an also an antipsychotic drug, TCAs, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. Do you remember um, the antidote that you carry for uh, beta blocker overdose? It's not really an antidote, but it's counter treatment. What's that? Not sulbutamol, no. Glucagon. Did we talk about this at all? No? Okay, we'll talk about it later then. Next presentation. Yeah.